My name is Pastor Tim, and I get to be one of the pastors here at Living Church, and I'm so excited that you're here on this final Sunday of 2019, this end of a decade. It's incredible. I'm so glad you're here. Could we take one last moment to celebrate what God did last week at Christmas? So incredible. Almost 1,600 people in the building. And real quick, I just want to honor our pastor. You know, he knew we needed to do eight services based on growth and attendance, but he didn't want to pull the trigger on eight services because he didn't want to ask that of staff, you guys as volunteers, because he loves us and wants to protect us even beyond kind of what he knows he needs to do. And because of his heart, it was the staff that said, no, 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 man, we'll take like adrenaline shots. We'll do drugs for like the week. Like we'll do what it needs to make it happen because we don't want to say no to somebody. As long as there's one seat that would be filled, we'll do it. And so thank you, pastor, for trickling that down. Can we give a hand for our pastors? We're so blessed, man. But Christmas is officially over, too. So there's that. And, you know, hey, January 8th, kids will go back to school. So thank you, Jesus. I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot of people that are out uh, traveling still, you know, either from Christmas or kind of last uh, holiday travels. And, and so because of that, they're out there. I'm the kind of person that uh, I love getting somewhere. I just don't love going there, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, I love being at a different place. I just hate the process of getting there on the way. I'm the kind of guy that, like, you pull over at a town to, like, use the bathroom and kind of refuel, and I'm like, this place is nice. Why don't we just stay here? Because I don't want to do the other however many hours it takes to get to the destination. Now, how many people are like that, that you're, you're not the road trip kind of person? That's me, and uh, so I can remember, you know, really multiple times in my life, but one in particular time of uh, a trip that I took where I didn't make the final destination. I was traveling with an evangelist, and so I was uh, going to camps all across the country and helping him kind of minister in those camps, and I was supposed to be meeting him in a camp in Minnesota. And a uh, little sneaky action, I knew that uh, a girlfriend of mine uh, was uh, actually going on family vacation in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I was like, yeah, Arkansas, Minnesota, like, and so I made a detour and went to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and kind of invited myself on her family vacation and ended up hanging out with them and kind of really liked it, and so I ended up calling that guy and saying, hey, man, something came up. I'm not going to be able to make it all the way to Minnesota and kind of ended up staying on their family vacation, and, you know, it worked out because I ended up marrying her, so, uh, so it worked out. Like, we had a good time and, and stuff. I would say it was profitable, but... I've always wondered what would have happened if I had made it all the way to that camp. What could God have done through me, uh, and how could I have ministered to students there? And, you know, I don't know if maybe you've ever been on a journey but stopped short and wondered what could have been, what should have been. Uh, I know that life is full of off-ramps. Life is full of additional exits that the enemy would love nothing more than to get you to exit early and not make it to the final destination that God has for you in your life. Because here's what we know about Living Church is that there's more. And so wherever you are on your journey with Jesus, we know that there's more that God has yet for your life. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, there's more that he wants to do in your life. And the reason I thought this message this time, this Sunday, is because a lot of you have been on a journey the last year. And you've made incredible progress. For some of you, you stepped out over the last year in worship in a way that you never have before. And some of you began to trust God financially. 
and that's something you had never done before. And some of you just made it a priority to be here at Living Church on a Sunday. And for you and your family said, you know, as for me and my house, we'll be here on Sunday. And I just want to give you a hand for the progress you've made. But my worry, my fear is that the enemy would love nothing more than to get you to take an early exit on the process, on the path that God has had you on. Because it can be really easy to say, you know what, like uh, we're good people. We go to church. Uh, we serve on a, on a team. We go to a life group. We're good enough, right? But God hasn't called us to a life of good enough. He's called us to a life of more than enough. And so I don't want you to settle for Jesus of just enough when God has called you to a life abundant, a life of more than enough. And so because of that, I wanted to uh, take a moment to, over the next few moments, talk about a journey uh, in the Bible that a older mentor, his name is Elijah, and his younger protege, his name is Elisha, took and I think that their journey can help us on our journey and wherever we are and wherever life has us today. I want to be real clear before I start, though, that what I'm not talking about in taking an early exit or, or taking is like a pit stop. Because everybody knows that there are times in life where you need to take a quick break. There are seasons in my life where I've had to take some time off the gas, remove my foot from the accelerator, and for the sake of my marriage and for the sake of my family, take some time. This last year has been one of those seasons where I took some time to take my foot off the gas and go to counseling and get healthy for my family because I'm not going to sacrifice my family on the altar of my ministry. And so there were things I would have loved to have done, opportunities I would have loved to have had that I had to say no to to take some time. But I'm not equating a pit stop to establishing a P.O. box somewhere. Do you know what I'm talking about? That Like taking a pit stop is saying, hey, for, for a season, we're going to recalibrate. We're going to look at the map again. We're going to refuel and get ready for this next season. But it can be easy to set up a P.O. box somewhere and establish residence in a season and say, this is where we live now. This is the way it is. This is fine. And living church is a place where it's okay to not be okay. For a season, it's okay to be walking through something and for things to be heavy, but we love you too much to let you stay there. And so because of that, I want to draw some out of their journey, some truths that I think can help us on our journey. And so before we read, can we go ahead and pray that God would open our eyes to the areas in which we can move forward and charge into what he has next for us. Father, we thank you for the journey that you have us on. That wherever we are, that you're proud of us, that you're cheering us on. And I pray that as we talk today, we take a few moments to pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to any truth that you have for us today. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. And so like I said, we're talking about a trip between a mentor and his protege, kind of a final journey. We have Elijah, the older guy, and Elisha, the younger guy, and we'll pick up their story in 2 Kings chapter 2. It says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah, the older guy, said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you not know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? 
Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. You see, you have this older mentor kind of on this last farewell tour, and he's stopping at several cities along the way, kind of saying goodbye to people that he's ministered to, and his young protege who is keeping on getting these opportunities to stop. I can imagine that there are people saying, hey, you're a young guy, you've got a lot of ministry left, and there's great work you could do here, so why are you going with this guy that will be gone soon? Stay here, like there's a promotion in it for you, come and pick up the work he did, and each time he keeps telling them, I know, so be quiet. And there are going to be people all throughout your life on your journey that say, hey, I see what you're doing, and it kind of looks crazy. Are you aware that you're spending all your time volunteering at this church? Are you aware that you're giving money to an organization and churches are, like, notoriously bad at handling finances? Are you aware how crazy what you're doing looks? And there are times in your life where you have to tell people, I know, be quiet. Because this is the journey that God has me on. And as for me and my house, this is the journey we're on. And we're committed to finishing it. And I think that it's important to note that this was not like a short jog that they were on. This is not like strap your Fitbit on and like go get, you know, a little sweat running. This was a 45-mile one-way trip. They have a map that they're pulling up here. And this is where they started at Gilgal. And they went all the way to Bethel and then to Jericho and then to the River Jordan. 45 miles. So this is a long journey, and there were multiple opportunities for Elisha to say, you know what, it's been great boss, but, you know, have a great trip. But he was committed to seeing the end of the journey. And here's what I know. It's that you can't step into your calling if you won't step out of your comfort zone. That there are going to be things that God asks you to do along the journey that are going to feel uncomfortable. And if you'll just trust him and step out of that comfort zone and into your calling, then you will see amazing things happen every time. Here's what I know and what I've declared over my life is that I might fall short of my calling, but I'm never going to stop short of my calling. That I might try and fail and fall on my face, but I'm never going to stop moving in the direction that God has me going. And there, the places, we just kind of rattled them off, but we're going to kind of camp out on them because I think the places that they journeyed were not coincidence, that they had super meaning to an Israelite, to Elijah and Elisha, you know how certain cities kind of get like a name or a reputation or a moniker with them? So like New York is the Big Apple. And Las Vegas is. And Paris is. City of Lights, yes. You, know, you can tell less people have been there. Uh, <laughs> and cities kind of get a reputation. And the cities that they stopped that would have had great spiritual significance to Elijah and Elisha. And so I want to kind of camp out on some of those because I think that the significance of them also has significance to us on this journey that we're on. And the first place that they would have stopped would have been Gilgal. That's the place of beginnings. You see, Gilgal was the first place that Israel came to and camped out at when they entered the promised land. When God brought them into the promised land, that was the first place that they stopped. And it was also the place where they renewed their covenant with God. 
You see, they had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and there was this older generation that had kind of caused them to be wandering and didn't believe and were kind of a little punks. And so they didn't have the faith to step in. And so God said, you know, as a punishment, you're going to wander around for 40 years until that generation is gone. And so there's this new generation that's been born up while they're wandering. But the problem is that they kind of still smell a little bit like Saturday night, like they've been born into this lifestyle, but they don't have the same level of commitment and the understanding that the older generation had. And then you also have this older generation that's become kind of more grumpy than they are grateful, that they're kind of jaded. They've been at this a little too long, and they kind of now more expect it from God than are grateful for what he's giving them. And so there needs to be this moment of kind of coming back to Jesus, coming back to covenant with God. And so Joshua 5, 8 through 9 says that after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal literally means rolling away. And you see, sometimes we've come out of Egypt, but Egypt hasn't quite come out of us yet. And they needed this rolling away moment, this level to set down the commitment and say, you know what, as for me and my house, we're going to be committed to God. And so Gilgal became that place. And I can remember the moment in my life where my sin was rolled away, where I met Jesus and we had our beginning moment for the very first time. I was at a uh, kind of a conference for junior hires, and I sat right in the center as this preacher talked about this Jesus who loved me just the way I was. And I didn't quite understand it, but I knew I wanted what he had. And so I accepted Jesus, and it changed my life. And I didn't quite know all the answers, but I knew that I wanted to be a better person. And I didn't know really how to be a better person. And so I went back to school after I had gotten saved, and there was this hallway where all these kids would, like, drink their Cokes after lunch and stuff. And then they would just kind of, like, leave them along the hallway. And I knew, okay, if you follow Jesus, then you have to be a better person what's something that no one else would want to do. And so I went and started gathering up all these cans and like walking them down the hallway and taking them back to the cafeteria. And I must've looked really silly, like just carrying cans and stuff, but I just wanted everybody to know that Jesus had changed my life and I wanted to be a different kind of person because of it. And so that was the only way that I knew how to show that at the moment. And I can remember that moment, but you see, here's the problem with that is that salvation is not the destination. But the longer you kind of stay there, the more comfortable you get. That's what had happened to Israel. And so you had these people who had been walking with Jesus for a long time, walking with God, but they were kind of used to it. And they were becoming more grumpy than they were grateful. And this is the danger, is that the longer you're in a relationship with Jesus, the less it means to you if you don't keep coming back to what he actually did for you. Many Christians get to that moment, that beginning moment, and they, they have this moment, and then they stop, and they camp there for the rest of their life. Like, that's the end. Like, like the, the goal is some sort of fire insurance. And they want just enough Jesus to save them from hell, but not enough Jesus to change their life. And there's so much more to the journey than just the beginning. If you're here on the journey, and maybe you say, man, I haven't, I haven't begun that relationship yet, can I tell you that there's no better time than today? that Jesus wants to start that beginning relationship with you just today. But if you've been on the journey for a while and have kind of been camping there, can I tell you, there's more. There's more to it. Jesus didn't just save you from something. Jesus saved you for something. Amen. And so there's a plan and a purpose over your life, and you can't just camp there. You have to keep moving. 
And so their journey continued, and the second place they arrived at was Bethel. And Bethel is the place of breakthrough. You see, Bethel was a place where a guy named Jacob met with God. You see, Jacob, his name means deceiver because his family kind of determined from early on that he's kind of a trickster. And so they named him Jacob, deceiver. And go figure, hey, man, the words that you speak over your kids are powerful. He ended up deceiving his brother for his birthright because that truth had been spoken over him. And so his brother vowed to kill him, and so he ran. And the first place that he came to and camped out was a place where he fell asleep and had a dream that he wrestled with God all night. And that towards the morning, the God is saying, hey, you need to let me go so that you can wake up. And Jacob's saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. And so God touches his hip and says, you know what? You're no longer named Jacob. You're named Israel. Jacob means deceiver. Israel means overcomer because you've wrestled with God and you've overcome. And so he had this moment where God showed up in his life and changed his name and made this breakthrough moment in his life. And so when he woke up, it says that he awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You see, Jacob assumed that because he had had such a powerful moment with God, that this must be where God lived. And so he named the place Bethel, which literally means house of God. This is where God must live. And my question for you today is, where was your Bethel moment? Where was that moment that you were so sure that God's hand was on your life that you could feel him speaking to you in your life? You could feel him moving in your life. For a lot of young people, it's like a camp that they went to or maybe a missions trip that they got a chance to go on. And it was this moment where they just knew he was there. For maybe some of you, it was SummerSlam here at Living Church or one of our encounter nights where God healed you or he broke some things off of you or and he moved in a way in power in your life that you would never experience before. And that became this Bethel moment for you. And if we're not careful, we can fall into this routine of just chasing those moments. Do you understand that the same power that moves in those moments goes with you out the door? That Jesus is not just here in this building on Sunday morning, but he follows you to your house. And what Jesus wants you to understand is that it's more than a moment that the power that he has goes with you and abides in you. The Bible says that it, he makes his home in the praises of his people, that he abides within you. John, sorry, 22 years go by in Jacob's life. So he's, the first time he came to Bethel, he was running away from his destiny. And he's lived some life, and life has not been very kind to him at all. And he's coming back to reconcile with his brother, and he comes to the same place. And I love this. This is what he says. It says, Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. You see, the first time he came to Bethel, he met with God and thought he must live here. But he's seen God's faithfulness over his life and now understands that that same God has followed him wherever he has gone. When we sit in his presence, we catch waves. When we move in his power, we cause them. 
when we sit in a moment like this, we experience the power of God, but that same power goes with you, believer, out the door when you leave. And can I tell you that you have the power, the authority, and the dominion over your life to speak God's power into your life. You don't have to come to a prayer partner to see God move in your life. You can pray over the same circumstances yourself and see God move because he listens to you just like he listens to them. And that power goes with you. When we move in his power, we cause waves in our life. And so they came from this powerful place of breakthrough, and they moved to Jericho, which is the place of battle. And isn't that the way it always is, that after breakthrough moments in your life, that there's a battle coming? Because the enemy has put a target on you and your family from the moment that Jesus shows up and starts to change your life. Every journey has obstacles, and either you're in a battle or, or one is coming around the corner. And sometimes our progress isn't always obvious. You see, Jericho was a medieval city that had some of the highest walls in biblical history. And there was no way for Israel to take the city or move past the walls. They were literally at a stalemate. And so what we have here in Joshua is the instructions that God gives to Israel on how to tear down the walls. He says in chapter 6, you and your fighting men should march around the city once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you're to march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast of the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the people can charge straight in. So there are these giant walls. You're going to walk around them. Six times for six days. And on the seventh day, you get to do it seven times. Then here's the magic. Don't miss it. Yell really loudly. And the walls will fall down. And so as they're walking, I've got to put myself in their shoes. That if I'm walking and it's like day one, day two, day three, I want to see like some cracks starting to form around the top of the walls. I want to see some bricks falling off and almost hitting me. I want to see like foundation problems like I got at my house. Like I want to see some progress happening on this and nothing's happening because that's not the way it works. But I want to remind you that the wall isn't a sign that you'll never get in. It's a sign that the enemy's desperate to keep you out. And when you see walls in your life, don't just automatically assume, okay, this far and no further. It's a sign that the enemy would love nothing more than to get you to take that early exit ramp and camp out there and say, this is all there is to life. We tell God, if you want me to keep walking, then I need to see that it's working. Don't we say that all the time? That if, if you want me to keep walking in this direction, I need to see some proof that you're actually here. But the outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is your responsibility. And so when you come against a battle in your life, when you're in that season where all that momentum that you had and all that power that you saw God moving in seems to stop, will you keep walking even when it doesn't seem working? Will you forgive even when they haven't earned it? Will you keep showing up to your job that you hate? Until God says stop because this is the place that he has you for the reason that he has you there. Will you keep walking even when it's not working? Because sometimes you have to keep marching when nothing is moving. So they've been on this journey and they've kind of been going through this tour of God's faithfulness throughout the history of Israel. And they arrive at the end of their journey. And it's almost time for Elijah to say goodbye to his mentor Elisha. And they arrive at the Jordan. And the Jordan is the place of more. 
You see, the Jordan River is the place where Israel crossed into the promised land. It's the literal embodiment of more for the nation of Israel. It's the place where God promised, do you see all that land past that river? It's all yours. It's the land flowing in milk and honey, and it's yours if you'll just trust me. It was the literal embodiment of more for them. And here's what happens when Elijah and Elisha get there. It says in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 8, that Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. That's not just in there for, like, fun. When Joshua and the army crossed into the promised land, they crossed over on dry ground, that God literally stopped the Jordan River. And I think what God is saying in this moment is the same promises from back then are true today, if you'll just trust me. The things I did back then, I can still do today, if you'll just trust me. You know, the Bible is not just a collection of like fun miracles. The same power still happens today, and the same miracles still work today, if you'll just trust him. It said, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Elisha said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. He asked for a double portion, and it's important to point out here that like, he's not just being greedy. In biblical times, the firstborn son was entitled to a double portion of his father's inheritance. You see, they didn't just split it evenly down times divided by the number of kids. They gave the firstborn a double portion of whatever that inheritance was, and the rest of the children had to split up whatever was left. And so when Elisha is asking for a double portion, he's saying, would you treat me like your son? I'm done being your servant. Would you treat me like your son? He's moved from being a servant of Elijah to being a son of Elijah. And so Elijah tells him, you've asked a difficult thing, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so I've got to imagine what Elisha must have been feeling. He's sitting there watching as his mentor, this, this guy he's been traveling with for years, is taken up and is gone. And anytime you're in a moment of transition, it can be easy to want to just kind of go back to the way things were, to want to go back to the beginning. And as Elisha's standing there, I got to imagine he's thinking, man, what now? Why doesn't he just go back to the way things were? And to understand that, we kind of have to go back to the beginning. Back to where he met Elijah for the first time. And it's all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. It says in verse 19 that Elijah went and found Elisha. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. Then I will come with you. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. And so you have this, this prophet, Elijah, show up on the scene and wrap his cloak around this young guy and say, would you follow me? And what follows is kind of bizarre. 
He goes and kisses his mom and dad goodbye. He kills the oxen. He, he, he slaughters his livelihood. He burns his equipment and gives all the food to the people around him, and he follows them. And what's kind of bizarre about this is kind of how mom and dad react or don't react. It's, there's no mention of, like, they, st- they suddenly filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy because he just slaughtered all of their livelihood. And there's no, and mom fought with him for, like, a long time and was sad that he left away. They're just kind of cool with it, it seems, that he's just following this guy. And to understand why, it's one of those moments where biblical history doesn't really help us, and we kind of have to revisit it from their perspective. You see, every Jewish boy would have started out in school around age five. And from age 5 to 10, Elisha would have learned the entire Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Do you understand that every 10-year-old boy had the first five books of the Bible memorized? You see, your kids are still memorizing things. They're just memorizing the things that we emphasize in life. You can't show me one 10-year-old boy who doesn't have, like, the whole Paw Patrol theme memorized by heart. From ages 10 to 14, they would go on to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. They would have had all of the Hebrew scriptures completely memorized. And when they reached the age of 14, they would have the opportunity to go up to a rabbi, a teacher, one of the most revered positions in their society, and ask him to be his disciple. And he would begin to grill them. He would ask them fact-finding questions. He would ask them questions that didn't really mean what they meant so that they could answer them with something they didn't really mean but what it meant. And it would get super confusing because he was trying to figure out, do they have this in them? And if he thought that they had it in them, he would take his mantle and place it over them and say, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple because I believe that you can do what I do. I see a little of me inside of you, and I think you could do it. So come and be my disciple. And they would spend the rest of, they would leave their family and their friends and their community, and they would begin following him with everything that they had. Now, there was always the chance, and most often, that the rabbi would quiz the student and say, you know what? You obviously know a lot about the Bible, but I don't see it in you. I don't think that you've got what it takes. And so he would tell them to go home, and make babies, and pray that they become rabbis one day, and apply their trade. And apply your trade basically means go do what your daddy does. And so here's the significance of this moment, that the reason Elijah is plowing with the oxen is because that's what his dad did. Because Elijah had a moment in his life where he went up to a rabbi and tried to become more, and somebody said, you know what? I don't think you've got it in you. I don't think that there's any more to you than just an oxen farmer. And so the moment that somebody comes up, this prophet, this rabbi comes up and says, you know what? I think there is more to you than meets the eye. I think there's more inside of you than has been written. Will you follow me? He jumps at the chance to follow this rabbi. And it kind of reminds me of another passage in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 4. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, 
follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. This isn't like early biblical mind control, y'all. This is a powerful moment for these men because they all had their moment and they washed out. There was a teacher or a rabbi who said, you know what? You're not smart enough. All I see is a fisherman. And they went to plying their trade. But a rabbi comes walking down the beach and says, I see more to you than meets the eye. Will you follow me? And they jump at the chance and they burn their oxen and they leave their nets. And you know what they're doing? They're getting rid of plan B because you can't step into more unless you burn the backup plan. You can't have this, you know, I'll go until it doesn't seem to work out and then I'll kind of go back to the beginning from where I was from. You have to burn the backup plan if you're going to experience the more of God in your life. And they followed their rabbi because the rabbi believed they could do it. The simple reason that they left what they had and began to follow Jesus was because he believed that they could do it. Because somebody looked at them and saw more than who they thought they were. And can I tell you that Jesus believes the same thing about you. In scripture, it says in John chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In John chapter 14, he tells him, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Jesus says, you're not only going to do what I was doing, you're going to do even greater things. I believe you can do it. I choose you because I believe that you can be like me. So come follow me. You see, being a follower means having faith in Jesus, but being a disciple means knowing Jesus has faith in you. That Jesus believes that no matter where you are on this journey, if you've kind of settled in and what was a pit stop has now become a P.O. box in your life, and you've just found yourself camping out and saying, this is all there is and this is all there can be, Jesus would say, no, I believe that there's more. And if you'll just continue the journey, if you'll just pick up your stuff and burn the backup plans in your life and just follow me, you're going to see more happen in your life than you can ever imagine. Whether you're in a place of beginnings and you're just kind of starting out on this journey, or maybe you found yourself in this place of breakthrough and God has done more than you could even imagine, or maybe you're in this place of battle where things are not going well and there is no forward momentum happening from what you can see, Jesus would say, just keep following me because I believe you can do it. There was this blessing that disciples would issue over there each other. It was this kind of way of saying, hey, I hope that things go well for you. They would say it like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Here's what they meant. Because they were walking on unpaved roads so often, they would have their shoes kick them, there'd be this constant cloud of dust, and the rabbi was always leading the way, and they are saying, I hope you follow your teacher, I hope you follow your rabbi so closely that the dust that comes up from his shoes literally settles on you, and you are covered in the dust of the one that you're following. And Living Church, I hope that over this next year that you are following Jesus so closely that his dust is following all over you. And that when people see your life and the favor and blessings that happen over the next year, that they would point to that and say, it could only be God. It could only be God. That's the only explanation because I know where they came from. I was there at the beginning. 
Because I know some of the battles that they've been walking through, and the only explanation is that they're following Jesus. Living Church, can I pray for you over this next year that that you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi and wherever you find yourself on the journey, whether you're in this place of beginning or this place of breakthrough or this place of battle, that you would know that no matter where you are, that there's more for you in 2020. There's more for your family. Just keep following Jesus.